Thanks, Carol. Wonderfully read. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Keep your Bibles open to that passage in Mark 9, and I'll pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that heaven is your throne and the earth is your footstool, and we pray that you would make us into a people who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in Mark chapter, uh, our, Mark, our term one series in Mark chapter 9 to 16 about following the king. And this week, the big question I want to ask you is this, how do I follow the servant king? So if you're writing notes, three discipleship lessons this morning. We've got a bit of ground to cover. Lesson number one, be dependent. This will be the longest. Lesson number two, be driven to serve. And lesson number three, be drastic. Well, come with me. How do I follow the servant king? Lesson number one, be dependent. Verses 14 to 29, the setting for our first scene takes place down the bottom of the mountain. Remember last week, we were at the top of the mountain for Jesus' transfiguration where we got to see a preview of Jesus in all his kingdom glory. What an amazing experience, like heaven and earth meeting together. Well, now we pick up the story with Jesus and his three disciples as they rejoin the disciples coming down the mountain. And what a disappointment it's going to be coming down the mountain. I remember a turning point in my Christian faith was when I was 15. as the first time I attended the Christian Youth Conference in Katoomba, a kick, and it was an awesome experience that weekend. Hearing the Bible taught with such conviction and power, singing praise songs. I came from a church where there were barely any youth and to have thousands of youth around me singing praises to Jesus and to be deeply moved one Saturday night as the speaker called for a response and hundreds of youth responded to following Jesus as their king. But a few days later, we travelled down the mountain and things came crashing back to earth. As I got back into school and my home life and I missed where I'd been, it had been so good. And maybe you know a time like that too, like the day straight after KO or a great Christian camp. Maybe it's the weeks after you first became a Christian. Maybe it's just a time when God drew very near His presence was close for one reason or another. It's a a time of spiritual heightenedness for you. Well, coming down the mountain after a spiritual high is never an easy experience. We heard a moment ago in that Old Testament reading, Moses returned down the mountain and was surrounded by a faithless generation gone amok. Well, here Jesus comes down the mountain too and things are much the same. Look at his assessment in verse 19. You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Jesus is exhausted. 
There's an absence of faith in everyone around him. No one is depending on God, not even his own disciples. Well, let's backtrack for a moment and see what's gone wrong. What lesson might need learning here? There are a series of four different sightings. Look with me at the first sighting in verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. The disciples are in a spot of bother, it seems. There's finger pointing going on, raised voices. It's probably like a recent boardroom meeting between Justin Langer and Cricket Australia. Peter, James and John are just going, what is going on here? There's a full-blown argument underway. Well, sighting number two, verse 15. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. We don't quite know why. Perhaps Jesus had an afterglow on his clothes. We're not told. Either way, the crowd is excited to see him. Jesus asks, what are you arguing about? He's probably addressing his own disciples, perhaps the teachers of the law, but it's an unexpected voice that replies, a father's voice, verse 17. Teacher, I brought you my son. At the top of the mountain, we heard a father's voice say, this is my son, whom I love. A son who radiated the glory of God and perfections of his own kingdom. But down the mountain, the contrast is stark. Down here in the kingdom below, an earthly father is tormented by a spirit possessing his own dearly beloved son. And what a bondage this boy is in. Verse 17, robbed of words, shaken, tossed about, foaming mouth, gnashing teeth, stony cold. But there's just a glimmer of hope for this dad. Words been getting out in the villages around. A kingdom clash of sorts has been spreading all over the place. Demons are being driven out with ease by the disciples of Jesus. But here, disappointment. Not here, not now. Look at the end of verse 18. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. He sensed how crushed this dad must have felt. And he's not the only one disappointed. Verse 19, we almost feel Jesus' exasperated groan. You unbelieving generation. How long? How long? Bring the boy to me. Citing number three, verse 20. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. Flawed again, rolling, foaming, and a question from Jesus. How long has he been like this? Dad's reply from childhood. A long time. Our second son, Jack, is nine months old and he's just recently learnt to commando crawl his way around the house like a good second child. And... uh He drags his feet along, getting into everything. And of course, the most exciting things for Jack are usually also the most dangerous. Cords, switches, and generally anything around Dad's desk. We have to have a constant eye on Jack at the moment just to keep him alive. Well, that's nothing compared to what this Dad's been through. 
Verse 22, he tells Jesus what this boy's whole childhood's been like. The spirit, it has thrown him into fire often, often into fire or water to kill him. Can you imagine that? I can't. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And here we come to the key verse in this whole first episode, verse 23. Jesus takes issue with what's just been said. If you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. The dad blurts out desperately, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You see, this whole episode is about the absence of faith-filled dependence. The crowd in Mark's gospel represent confusion. The teachers of the Lord don't trust Jesus. The nine disciples are relying on their own strength and power. And here is a father with at best mixed faith, if you can. Well, back in Mark chapter 1, at the beginning of the gospel, a man with leprosy came to Jesus, begging him on his knees and said, If you are willing, you can make me clean. What a difference there is between if you can and if you are willing. Well, a fourth and final sighting, verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he waited for them all to arrive. No, he didn't. He got to it. He rebuked the death and mute spirit. Get out and stay out. And this hellish spirit, we're told, verse 26, didn't leave quietly either. Whispers break out all around them. He's not moving. He's dead. I think he's killed them. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand. And more literally, the Greek reads here, he lifted him up or he raised him. Same word. And the result, he arose and it's very similar wording to jesus's miracle back in chapter five when he raised a little girl back to life and it's important you see because the disciples are struggling throughout these chapters with the idea of following a king committed to dying but mark keeps preparing us through scenes like these to see that when it comes to jesus death won't have the final word We'll finally look at the epilogue for lesson number one, verse 28. They're inside now. They're out of the open. Just Jesus and his disciples tucked away from the crowds. And his disciples ask him the burning question. Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. In other words, dependence on God is the key lesson they needed to learn. Because following the servant king means being dependent on God in prayer. Why? Because prayer is our faith verbalized. After church last Sunday, one of the creche kids was singing a song in the playground just out here. Read your Bible every day. Pray, pray, pray. And it was very sweet to hear. Well, the disciples could take a leaf out of that little boy's book. And I imagine many of us, myself included, could do the same because powerless ministry, prayerless ministry is powerless ministry. At the church I grew up in, there was an old lady 
an old saint, her name was Joy, and she used to put it like this. No prayer, no power. Little bit of prayer, little bit of power. Much prayer, and she always did it deeply, much power. What's the first lesson for following the servant king? Be dependent. Lesson number two. How do I follow the servant king? Be driven to serve. Verses 30 to 41. But let's start with the key verse. At the heart of it all is verse 35. Jesus taught his disciples. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. That's discipleship 101. You want to be great? Wonderful. Die to self. It's the same message from Jesus as chapter 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Why? Because at the very heart of following the servant king is having his heart too. Does it come naturally? No, it doesn't. I have a three-year-old who sits next to me at the dinner table every night and says to me, Daddy, I'm going to beat you. Sinner! And you and I are just the same. We're driven to put ourselves first, to be number one, to push others down. Pride is our default position. In fact, right before verse 35, what have the disciples been arguing about? Who is the greatest? They've got that same instinct, so innate, I'm going to beat you. If we're going to follow Jesus, we need to learn to be last. And to do that, we need to see what drives Jesus. Look back at verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered up, killed, and after three days, rise again. Jesus is driven to serve in the ultimate way by giving up his own life for the sake of others. And he set his face toward the cross in these chapters, because in God's kingdom, it's down before up. We're to be humble like our servant king, and it starts with how we view others, which is why Jesus then takes a little child into his arms, verse 36, and says, whoever whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me and welcomes the one who sent me. Well, Jesus' point is easily lost on us in a modern society. We mostly prize little children, whereas back then a little child was an example of an insignificant one, someone who'd naturally be last in the cultural pecking order. But Jesus says that believer, that little one, that insignificant one, the one that's easy to brush past altogether, there's not much to be gained with them. No, the servant mindset says, count that person more significant than myself. And maybe it is a child. I uh, had a conversation with Sarah Lancaster at the end of late last year, asking her for advice coming into my role about the maturity goals and how they intersect with family and kids ministry here at 9.30. And she said this, you know what the kids at 9.30 need? They need adults who aren't their mum and dad, who over morning tea acknowledge them, say hello to them every week, and know them as equal members of this church. 
That's a challenging word, isn't it? Well, don't take this as a cue for all of us to bombard the playground at morning tea. But the point is rather to shift your attention away from yourself. Don't do what's comfortable for yourself over morning tea. Instead, the mindset of the servant is to look to others with a welcoming heart. And maybe another way of putting it is to kill the thought that secretly says, I'm better than everyone else. And it's easier said than done. And it seems in our passage that it could be a lesson, particularly for one disciple, John, who's very worried, verse 38, He's been, he's seen someone else who's been driving out Jesus, demons in Jesus' name too, which is quite ironic when you think about it, what we've just looked at earlier. Here's someone who's actually succeeding at driving out demons where they've been failing. But the real issue for John is at the end of verse, end of the verse 38, he's not one of us. To which Jesus says, don't worry about him. Verse 40, whoever is not against us is for us, which is a way of saying the where of becoming more exclusive than Jesus. As one commentator puts it, his kingdom is bigger than our experience of it. We're not to be undiscerning, no, but we are to be generous and we're to guard against a pride that leads to a rivalry and instead value even the kind, even the smallest act of kindness from a believer. Even one who, not naturally, we wouldn't draw a circle for our group and put them in it. But Jesus says, I tell you, the smallest act of kindness from them hasn't gone unnoticed from their Father in heaven. Well, how do I follow the servant king? Be dependent, be driven to serve, and lastly, lesson number three. We follow the servant king by being drastic. Verses 42 to 50. Read with me. From verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Isn't that awful? In other words, drastically avoid causing harm to another believer's faith. Who's the little one again? It's the insignificant. It's the ordinary Christian, the simple-minded believer, the little child, whoever they are, they are deeply precious in Jesus' sight. And so only a very wicked person sets out to destroy their faith, to cause them to stumble, to cause them to sin, to cause them to offend their God. That person should watch out. Jesus is saying they'd be better off at the bottom of the ocean with a rock tied around their neck. It is such a sober warning. Don't shipwreck someone else's faith. And secondly, and just as seriously, Jesus warns his disciples not to self-sabotage their own faith. How could we do that? By entertaining sin rather than putting sin to death. Look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, verse 45. If your foot causes you to stumble, if your eye, verse 47, causes you to stumble, cut it off, cut it off, gouge it out. Isn't that awful? Well, don't get this wrong. 
Otherwise, it will be painful in the wrong way. Jesus' point isn't to literally self-name ourselves, cut off your arm, as if cutting off your arm and would stop you from still stealing something on your way home with the other arm. No, the point is to be drastic about dealing with sin. And it's a contrast going on. One thing which is awful, well, that's better than this thing. The point is to be drastic about dealing with sin. As one old Christian writer puts it, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And in one sense, this is another explanation of what it means for a follower of Jesus to follow him, to deny themselves, pick up their cross and come after him. We do it by denying ungodly fleshly desires. Is it always easy? No. Is it always, what about the preacher? Is it easy for him? No. Is it always necessary? Yes. Why is sin so dangerous for a Christian? Because unchecked sin can lead someone, even a believer, someone, it is deadly to play games with sin. And nothing could be worse than putting your faith in peril toward hell. Jesus describes hell as a place of eternal punishment. Verse 48, where the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. And Jesus speaks here, take note of this. It's a warning for Christians. That's what Jesus is doing. He's warning Christians whom he loves. It's not a message for unbelievers here. It's a warning for the Christian. Why? Because Jesus wants Christians to have a radically anti-sin posture in their life. Well, five practical response steps for us. One, check yourself this morning. That's why Jesus gives us warnings. Is there an area in your life of sin that you've not taken seriously? What is it? Take a moment today, write it down, be specific. Two, honestly confess sins to God. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Make it a regular habit to confess sins to our God. 3. Tell a trusted brother or sister in Christ about what you've confessed. Maybe it's someone in your growth group. Growth groups aren't a place for being superficial. They're a place for growing, being radical, being drastic. Maybe it's someone you reach out specifically toward. Maybe it's private enough that actually warrants just a text or a call to say, hey, can we meet up? Can we get coffee? Whoever it is, whatever it is, be brave and honest with them. Bring sin out into the light through fellowship with one another and ask for prayer. Ask them to pray with you about it. Four, take whatever drastic steps need taking. Get the upper hand on any prevailing sin in your life. I was so encouraged ringing uh, someone earlier this week who said, yeah, I've set up a group on WhatsApp to keep me accountable to my Bible reading and guess what? They're keeping me accountable in this other way too. Whatever it is, and it's going to vary depending what sin it is, Go back to Mark chapter 7 to see the kind of sins that come, not from the hand, the foot, the eye, from the heart. 
be drastic. And number five, look to the cross. Because the reason Jesus gives this final lesson here, warning us about the danger of sin and hell, warning us about causing someone else to stumble and warning us about sabotaging our own faith is not because he hates us, it's because he loves us. Do you know it's a loving thing to warn someone? How do we know that Jesus loves us? Because Throughout these chapters, we're seeing Jesus set his face to serve others by dying on a cross. The one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Well, how do you and I follow the servant king? Be dependent, be driven to serve, be drastic and praise God for the cross of Christ. Let me pray for us. Our Father God, we thank you that you are a gracious God. We thank you that you are filled with mercy. We thank you that you love the little ones that you love us. And we thank you for sending Jesus, the servant king. Thank you for his drivenness to go to the cross, to die in our place for our sins. Lord, we praise you and give you the glory and ask for your help to take up our cross and follow him too in Jesus' name. Amen.